Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of the dead come back? The Beast of Blanchland by Rowan Bowman. It was early last New Year, the day after my 30th birthday. I'd been driving from a parent's farm in Weirdale and had taken the scenic route home in the moonlight, following the thin strip of tarmac that winds across the hills. There was no other traffic, although it wasn't yet ten. The moonlight was so bright that there was a dim blue-green smudge of colour to the short-cropped turf and the heather stood out black against it. I once ran a sheep over and I'm always cautious on unfenced roads. I was nearly home, doing well under sixty, on the long descent from the moors in the deep, sheltered valley. In the far distance, I caught the first glimpse of the Derwent Reservoir, silver in the moonlight. A poacher's moon, stone-cold sober, doing fifty, watching out for livestock. Yet, I didn't stand a chance. I came round the bend and there was a huge cat standing in the road, the size of a Labrador or maybe a little bigger, jet black, its eyes yellow in my lights. As I slammed on the brakes, I instinctively steered away from the creature. There's no room for mistakes on a road that narrow. One front wheel hit the ditch and the car was flipped over onto its roof. I was shaking, but couldn't feel any immediate pain. There was a strong smell of petrol, I fumbled at my seatbelt, which had jammed. My jacket had fallen from the back seat onto the roof of the car. I pulled it towards me and groped for the pocket knife I keep in it. I sawed through the belt and tumbled out of the door, dragging my coat out after me. The knife clattered down somewhere underneath the car. The airbag belatedly detonated with a dull thump. I reached in past it and turned the motor off. I scrambled up the opposite verge, put my jacket on, and waited in the headlights for the adrenaline to wear off. I had crashed just where the moors give way to enclosures. The animal I had narrowly missed was nowhere to be seen. The road was flanked by dilapidated dry stone walls with poles leaning against them to support a single strand of barbed wire. Every barb had wool caught on it from wayward sheep evading captivity. I tried my mobile but I knew already there was no reception up here. I guessed I was three miles at most from Blanchland and began my trudge down the steep road. About a quarter of a mile later, I realised I was in a bad way. The shock numbed my ankles and I couldn't trust my feet not to stumble. Blood thundered in my right ear, my ribs hurt badly and the cold night air seemed to pierce my lungs with every breath. I decided to turn in at the next farm track I came to and ask for help. Even so, I almost didn't go down to Snowfell Hall. The grand-sounding name belied the shabby farmhouse, a steading at the bottom of a steep, unmade track with a loud stream behind it and the windbreak of a tall larch. The place had rumours, half-forgotten, muddled stories attached to it, and I'd heard it said that many years ago the bodies of two lovers were found downstream, a suicide pact. It was certainly lonely, but it had something about it. Maybe the proportions, I don't know. It seemed to grow out of the hillside. It had two floors at the front, 
but the stone slates sloped steeply down to a single story at the back. Soil had built up behind the cluster of outbuildings that formed a little cobbled yard in front of the house, so they were almost hidden from the road. All that could be seen was the moss that obliterated the roof. I thought the place had been empty for decades. I'd nosed around the outside once or twice on summer walks, and had once even made inquiries about buying it, but the agents who let the land had been unhelpful and vague, and I had given up. Now in my moment of need, cheerful yellow lights beckoned me. The door seemed newly painted. Someone with more persistence than I had obviously persuaded the owners to sell. There was no answer at first. I could smell wood smoke, and there had been voices before I knocked. I tried again. The door was opened a crack on the security chain. Richard? A young man's voice asked. He sounded relieved. No, I'm Jonathan, Jonathan Headley. I live over at Edmund Byers. I've crashed my car. He opened the door wide and stared at me. He was around my height, but slim, probably still in his twenties. He had an ugly goatee beard and his hair was a startling black against his white face. He was smoking a joint which he didn't bother to hide. He didn't show any sympathy. I, I wondered if I could use your phone. I let it drift. What I really wanted was to sit down in a comfy chair in front of a warm fire and go to sleep. You'd better come in, he said, as if he'd read the lines somewhere. Uh, thank you. The hallway was narrow, peppered. The hallway was narrow, papered in hideous yellow and brown hexagons and lit by a naked bulb. A flight of stairs led up into the darkness. The floor was bare concrete with a plastic woven runner at the middle. I followed him to the end of the passage. He pushed open the door and let me go first into a dingy kitchen. It was large and foggy rather than warm, with a duck-egg blue rayburn in the old fireplace. The units were 1960s ply painted pink. Piles of dirty pans and crockery stood in the stainless steel sink. Mildew bloomed above the tiling. It smelt of a time before hygiene and reminded me sharply of my great-grand scullery with its menagerie of arthropods. Wait in here. He shut the door behind me. I could hear him go into another room and speak to someone. A woman's voice replied. They both sounded alien and upper class. My northern hackles rose. All I needed was a little hospitality. If an injured stranger turned up at my doorstep, I liked to think I would have behaved better. He hadn't invited me to take a seat, so I stood by the grimy kitchen table and waited. The door was flung open by a young woman with long straight brown hair. She had a craggy aristocratic face and turned her nose up at my appearance. I apologised before I could stop myself. Seconds later, she was joined by another woman, barely out of her teens, who pushed past and came up to me. She looked up at me and gave a little wriggle like a puppy. Oh, how nice of you to drop in. She came close enough for me to smell the red wine on her breath. Her right hand was bandaged. She wasn't wearing a bra under her embroidered cotton smock. I'll seat him, Annette, the other woman said. We don't have to wait for Richard anymore. We can start the party now. Please, I, I just need to use your phone. I don't want to... You're injured. Uh, I had a crash. The car overturned. Marcus said... 
You aren't bleeding. There was an edge of craggy sarcasm to go with her craggy face. I, I think I've cracked my ribs. You should go to hospital. Uh, probably. I waited for her to go and ring for an ambulance or offer to drive me to casualty. She and Annette looked at each other. The pause lengthened. So, um, if I could just use your phone. You can try. It isn't working. Shit. On reflection, I didn't really fancy going in a car with any of them. Annette was drunk, Marcus was stoned, and the other woman, inebriated or not, was vile. Maybe I'd better just get myself down at the village. I felt my legs give way even as I said it. I leant against the table and tried not to pass out. Oh, for God's sake! He's going to faint! Marcus! Come and help me get him onto the couch! Marcus drifted in. I had to put my arm around his shoulders. He was disconcertingly strong for his build. The smell of melted deodorant and stale sweat nearly made me sick. He half carried me back down the passage to their sitting room. I sank down onto a brown sofa and closed my eyes. When I opened them, my vision was crowded by the three of them staring down at me. They weren't that much younger than I was, and it irritated me that they didn't seem to have a clue what to do next. I just wanted someone to look after me. Marcus passed me a drink. I nearly shrieked from the pain in my ribs when I sat up to take the glass. I swallowed the brandy. It did actually make me feel better. I accepted another one. We have no transport until Richard gets here. Oh, God knows what he's going to say. I drained my glass. We could always just bump him on the head and put him in one of the outbuildings, Marcus said. I stared at him. He laughed and came across with the brandy bottle. Put you out of your misery. Sorry to be a nuisance. Stop apologising. It's so... The woman gave a little shudder. I do like your shoes, Annette said. She flopped down next to me with enough force to make me wince despite her diminutive size. I was wearing trainers, blue and brown suede. She was wearing awful, clumpy, retro-looking platforms and flared purple jeans. I resented the sarcasm in her tone. I took revenge by drinking more of her brandy. You shouldn't drink like that on an empty stomach. Do you want some supper? I looked at my watch. It had stopped at ten to ten. Waterproof to fifty metres, but it couldn't take a car crash. It felt too late for supper. Annette, he can't stay. What are we supposed to do with him then? We could have some fun, Marcus said. His face split into a warped smile. I wasn't finding this amusing. Uh, can I use your bathroom, please? What for? Annette asked. The other woman sighed heavily and stood up. She held her hand out to me as though I was six and led me upstairs. I think it was the deco that made me throw up rather than the brandy. I puked in a lavatory bowl in two-tone maroon and pink. Kneeling on a damp mat, I stayed on my knees while the pain in my ribs subsided to a reasonable level, staring at the tessellating patterns of mauve, red and brown on the walls. The splash zones of the bath and sink were tiled in mottled brown and green. No wonder the people here were so strange. They were obviously traumatised by interior design. The craggy woman was still standing in the doorway. I groped my way to the basin and washed my face. Have you been here long? I asked, with as much irony in my voice as I felt her manner deserved. She passed me a threadbare brown towel. That's none of your business really, is it? 
I needed some privacy. I held the door, or rather held onto it, and waited until she got the idea and left. There was blood in my urine. I tried my phone again, but there was still no signal. I rummaged through their bathroom cabinet, hoping to find some analgesics. There was only an ancient clear glass bottle of aspirin with cotton wool in the neck, obviously from the last occupant. I pocketed it in case of greater need later. It didn't feel like stealing. I doubt it was theirs. I pushed open the other doors before I went downstairs. They hadn't got round to renovating the first bedroom, bare and cold and dusty in the feeble light from the landing. The other two bedrooms stank. The beds had candlewick covers in pastel shades which clashed horribly with the violent patterns on the walls. The original Victorian fireplaces had been clumsily obliterated, leaving a jagged outline visible under the paper where they had been ripped from the walls. I wondered if the Che Guevara post had been theirs or if it had been left behind. Theirs, I decided. The bed was unmade in the last room, with women's underwear lying on the floor. I remembered I was trespassing and quickly closed the door. I heard them talking as I came downstairs. I doubt he'll make it to the morning anyway. I don't think he's as badly hurt as he makes out. I told you, leave it for Richard. I paused on the bottom step. I was fairly certain that they were just talking big, fueled by drink. Maybe they meant me to hear and be scared. That might be the fun Marcus had referred to. They were creepy enough, however, to make me decide to take my chances in the night. The front door was bolted, top and bottom. I turned the Yale lock silently, then slid back the top bolt. I couldn't bend to unfasten the bottom bolt, so I cautiously began to nudge it along with the toe of my shoe. It hurt to balance on one foot, and I had to hold onto the wall for support. It was impossible to breathe quietly, but they'd put on some music. I relaxed a little and pushed harder. My shoe made a scraping noise. I paused, but could only hear music, the stooges, appetite for destruction. The bolt finally clunked out of its housing. I turned the doorknob. The door creaked sharply. Going somewhere, Jonathan? I jumped. My ribs hurt me enough to make me cry out. Marcus was right behind me, breathing down my neck. I opened the door wide. It was snowing heavily, with four inches on the ground. It hadn't been forecast. The night had been clear and cold without a cloud in the sky. I knew I wasn't well enough to walk anywhere through thick snow. I slumped against the wall. Marcus reached past me and closed the door, bolting it as before. Go and sit down. The room was brighter than it had been, and I was less groggy, having vomited most of the alcohol from my system. There were several table lamps and three large candles were burning on the low table in front of the sofa, amid the detritus of bottles, cigarette papers, fag ends, mugs and glasses. Annette was standing by the fire with her back to us, swaying with the music. The other woman was now wearing glasses and holding a paperback in one hand and a cigarette in the other. She looked up as Marcus escorted me in. There were more empty wine bottles than I remembered. I wondered how long I'd been upstairs. I had looked into this room once before, peering through the grimy window when I tried to buy it. There had been no furniture, of course, as the place was empty, but I recognised the hideous wallpaper and beige-tiled fireplace. 
Rather than redecorating, they had chosen to embrace it and furnish the house in period with their hipster lifestyle. It was almost admirable in its attention to detail. The music was coming from a large turntable in mock teak and shiny black plastic. LP covers were strewn around it on the floor. They seemed to have replicated my parents' record collection. I wondered stupidly if Dad had sold his LPs in a car boot sale. I tried to pull my thoughts back to my current situation. I took a deep breath to steady myself, flinching with the pain. Sit down, Marcus repeated. I sat. Look, I, I need some help. I've obviously cracked some ribs and I think I'm concussed or in shock or something. Please, even painkillers would help. We have wine, the woman said, stubbing out a cigarette. I have some codeine left, said Annette. She rummaged in her canvas shoulder bag and passed me a plastic tube of tablets. I checked the label. It said codeine, but the prescription was for a Mr. R. Collins. The other woman passed me a glass of red wine. I hadn't been able to keep the brandy down a little while ago. I looked at the wine dubiously and swallowed just sufficient to take the pills. I put the glass down amid the clutter on the table in front of me. The woman flopped back down in her seat and shrugged at Marcus. He began to rifle through the LPs. He selected the Velvet Underground. Sleazy music slid over me and I closed my eyes for a moment. Whiplash, girl child, in the dark. I woke up with a jerk when Annette sat down astride me. I yelped and tried to push her off. Please! I could hardly breathe. Leave him alone! I'm just being friendly, Susie! Do you have a girlfriend? A wife? She'd be worried about me. What's her name? Kylie. Even through the pain, I felt a disloyal twinge of embarrassment. Kylie? Is that Scottish or something? Uh, please get off, you're hurting me. She laughed, a horrible forced laugh. She knew she was hurting me. Please, I appealed to the other woman. She ignored me. A drop of blood splashed on my jumper. Your hand's bleeding. Does that bother you? It did rather, but I looked at her steadily, trying to breathe as shallowly as possible. She held her hand in front of my face. It was clumsily bandaged, blood soaking through. Her little finger was missing. Richard did that. What? With bolt cutters. Jesus! I was going to be sick again. Let me up! Another bath? She slid off me. I tried to stand up but ended up on my hands and knees fighting the waves of nausea. When I looked up, the other woman was standing over me holding out a glass of water. Try this. I knelt back on my heels and gulped it down. I have to get to a doctor. She should get a hand seen to as well. Not possible, I'm afraid. Why did he do it? I asked. She shrugged and turned away. Annette had withdrawn to the fireplace. I closed my eyes and curled into a heap on the grimy rug, waiting for things to get better. I must have slept. When I woke, it was beginning to get light. Marcus was sprawled over an armchair and a net was on his lap twined round him. The room looked even more squalid in the grey dawn and it smelt like an ashtray. For a moment, it seemed to shift around me to turn into the dark dereliction that I was more familiar with. I rubbed my eyes. Susie was stretched out on the sofa behind me. She stirred at my movement, 
I was so stiff I had to crawl to the door. Did we say you could go? Marcus asked. I looked around. All three of them were alert, watching me. Both women looked like clowns from some disturbing circus act, mascara smeared down their cheeks. I'm going to take a piss. On your hands and knees, if I have to. I scrabbled at the sitting room door and crawled up the stairs to the bathroom. There was more blood this time. I rubbed the frost from the windowpane and looked out onto a foot of snow. I thought I had only been a couple of minutes, but as I opened the bathroom door, there was already activity in the kitchen. The smell of frying bacon made me gag and salivate at the same time. I was walking almost upright by the time I got downstairs. Annette met me at the stairfoot with a mug of tea. Where's Marcus? I asked. Are you scared of him? No, I lied. You should be. How's your hand? It's getting better. I didn't want Richard to use my left hand. You can't put an engagement ring next to a stump. She held up her left hand. There was a small pearl ring on her fourth finger. Annette, Susie called from behind the kitchen door. What was it? I asked. Some sort of sadomasochistic thing. She turned back to me. You do say some funny things. Annette, shut up. Susie had come out of the kitchen and was standing in the passage. Breakfast ready. The table was glistening in wet arcs from a dishcloth. There were four plates of bacon and eggs. He might as well have Richard's. Richard isn't coming, Annette said, just as Marcus came in through the kitchen door, stamping snow off his boots. He glared at her and sat down. I sat opposite, not waiting for an invitation. We began to eat. I don't think Richard's coming, she said again. Be quiet, we have a guest, Susie warned her. Marcus said, it's too late. We'll have to see to him anyway. The food turned to ashes in my mouth. There was nothing to say. I took a mouthful of tea. Eat up, he said. Last breakfast for the condemned. He's taken the money and gone without us, Annette persisted. The grin slid from his face. He rounded on Annette. Richard wouldn't do that, idiot. Something's happened. Maybe they haven't paid. He'll get here as soon as he can. The road's probably blocked. Or they've paid up and he's bolted. Or they haven't paid and we'll need another finger, Marcus retaliated. Annette subsided sulkily. Heard enough, he asked, turning on me. You faked a kidnap. I focused on the congealing streak of fat and yolk on my plate. Well done. You're waiting for this Richard to bring the ransom. Quite advanced reasoning for a peasant. So why would anyone pay a ransom for Annette if she isn't there? Obviously we said we'd deliver her after we got the money. I turned to Annette. I suppose it's your parents you're swindling. I'm just getting some of my inheritance early. So what makes you think that they'll pay a ransom for you? There was an uncomfortable silence for a moment. Richard did a lot of research, Annette said. We know what they can afford. Being able to afford it and being willing to part with it are two different things. Don't be so damn stupid. Marcus stood up. The older woman looked unsure. They'll be desperate to have me back. Annette sounded aggrieved and certain. Sure of that? You lot are all descended from bloody cattle rustlers. 
The one thing all your families are good at is keeping hold of money, no matter what. I hadn't realised they held so much resentment until the words were out, but they didn't seem overly offended. What'll you do if they don't pay? Give them more incentive? Marcus stepped behind Annette, putting his hands on her shoulders. I'm not squeamish. Even if they have paid, I continued, sounds like this Richard has cheated you. Marcus lunged across the corner of the table and dragged me to my feet. Who asked for your opinion? His spittle showered my face. Take him through to the sitting room and keep him there. I need to talk to Susie. Annette trotted off. I followed slowly. The room was cold. The fire had gone out. I sat down next to her on the sofa. This might be my only chance to get one of them on my own, and Annette was clearly the weakest link. Can I have some more codeine, please? I only have six left. It's time we both got out of here. Why? Well, for a start, we both need medical treatment. As soon as the ransom's paid, we'll get over to France, and I'll see a doctor then. I think Marcus is going to kill you, though. Marcus talks a lot of shite. Did he force you to let Richard cut off your finger, or did he bribe you with that little ring? You're horrible. I'm not talking to you. Then at least listen. How well do you know Richard? Marcus knows him. They're at St. Martin's together, I think. So you don't know him? I've known Marcus nearly all my life. Richard's not coming, is he? Marcus says he's going to give him until midday. What then? She shrugged, but she'd lost yesterday's perkiness. I watched her droop cradling her hand. I waited until she'd begun to snivel before I stood up. She was too busy feeling sorry for herself to bother with me. I left as quietly as I could. My legs were shaking worse than when I walked down the track to this squalid hellhole. Marcus came up behind me and put his hand on my shoulder before I could reach out for the doorknob. It seemed pointless to put up a fight until I could find myself some sort of advantage. I turned round without a word and went to sit back down next to Annette. Marcus pulled one of the armchairs up to the coffee table and put a handgun onto the table with a decisive clunk. I stared at it stupidly for a moment and came to the depressing conclusion that he thought I was too far gone to attempt to snatch it. Or maybe he wanted me to try to give him an excuse to finish me off. We sat in silence for a few minutes. Presently, Susie came in and sat down on the floor across the table from me. She didn't even look at the gun. Well, looks like midday has come and gone, said Marcus. I glanced at him. It was surely not even an hour since dawn. I seemed unable to hold on to time. We have to decide what to do for the best. Annette sat next to me, making no movement to suggest she was listening to Marcus. He seemed to only be talking for Susie's benefit now. Susie glanced at Annette, then turned to him. Richard told us to stay put. He must be stuck in the snow. Richard told me to cut my losses if he didn't make it back. You made plans with him then? I thought we were all supposed to be in this together. We always knew we were carrying excess baggage. They exchanged meaningful looks, ignoring me. You couldn't, Susie hissed. We can't take her with us. We have to cut our losses. You can't use that. I wasn't intending to. The bash on the head and put her into the stream. 
death by misadventure. What about him? Same thing. He's a goner anyway. And me? We'll stick together, Susie. The sodden lump beside me suddenly roused herself. Jealousy finally penetrating where self-preservation had failed. She launched herself across the coffee table and toppled Susie. They scrambled to their feet, grabbing handfuls of hair and lashing out with their nails. The girls I grew up with all punched and kicked as hard as the boys. I'd never seen a proper cat fight before. It's a stuff of legend. They were lost in a frenzy of hair, blood spattering from Annette's hand as they circled each other, locked together like sumo wrestlers, spitting and screeching like banshees, but doing very little long-term damage. Marcus tried to pull Annette off Susie, and one of them clawed his face. By the time he straightened up, I had the gun. I threw my arm around his neck, trying to hold myself upright as much as anything, and pushed the muzzle into the side of his head. We both toppled over backwards. He landed on top of me and I pulled the trigger. His weight went slack, and the girls froze in mid-scuffle. I'd only ever shot rabbits before, and very few of those. I didn't consciously consider the difference between my feeble air rifle and the heavy handgun, nor the difference between rabbits and a man. I had a gun and a target, as easy as that, as though weariness and pain were enough to absolve me from responsibility. I heaved him off me with the dregs of adrenaline. The young women stood transfixed. I still held the gun, but I was lying back on the sofa. I would have let one of them take it from me if they'd tried. The sound of a car engine outside broke into the silence. No one spoke. The car crunched to halt in the yard, buffered by the deep snow. The only person they were expecting was Richard, and I had no wish to meet him. I looked back from the sitting room door at the three of them, my victim sprawled face down, Susie on her knees now next to his body, Annette standing behind her, staring at me through her tangled hair. Neither woman spoke. I heard someone thump on the door as I stepped into the entrance hall. I kept walking, past the stairs, down the passageway and through the freezing kitchen. I slipped out of the back door and limped around the house. The snowy courtyard was empty except for an old brown Volvo estate car steaming in the cold. One of the women was screaming inside the house by the time I got past the car. I thought of stealing it, but the track was so steep and the snow was so deep that I doubted any of us would be driving back up that day. I had given up trying to walk upright by the time I left the shelter belt. I crawled as far as I could up the channel that the car had made. I wasn't aware that I had fallen flat on my face. When I opened my eyes, the snow had gone, but it was bitterly cold and the sun was setting. Thankfully, I'd crawled further than I thought. I could see my car on the skyline above me, and the road was only a few yards to my left. I hauled myself to my feet using the rough, flat stones of the dry stone wall. I pulled myself to the next sheep pole and wrangled it free of its wire. It was rotten at the bottom, but strong enough to take my weight. I made it to the road, leaning heavily on the pole. I turned to look back at Snowfell Hall. It was getting dark, but there was enough light to see the liquid movement of a big black cat 
streaking up the hillside behind me. I clung to the pole and fumbled for the gun, but I had lost the dexterity to use it. I couldn't even hold it properly, let alone raise it to take aim. I brandished the pole towards the beast, smothering the rush of air and pain from my lungs. The cat paused a few yards away, panting out a cloud of vapour in the gloaming. I took a few cautious steps down the tarmac road. It hesitated, then padded after me, keeping its distance. It followed me all the way down into the valley to within the last mile to the village. The moon had risen by then, and the last I saw of it, it was standing in the moonlight beside the parapet of the bridge with its long heavy tail twitching and the glint of its eyes in the moon. I swear it was a panther. There were houses along the road, but I hobbled past the splashes of warm light from the windows, unwilling to risk the kindness of strangers again. The last half mile was a long level straight, and I kept going until I reached the pub at Blanchland. The handful of drinkers jeered as I waded through thin air to the bar. The barmaid shrieked when she recognised me. Jonathan, good God, we've been out looking for you when they found your car. Where the hell have you been? I let the pole fall to the floor with a clatter and slapped the gun to the bar so that I could grab hold of the counter with both hands. The customer shuffled back. I gripped hold as tight as I could, but slid down onto the stone flags anyway. I was still trying to tell them what happened when the ambulance arrived. D.I. Wallace was being as patient as he could with me. I just couldn't take it in. Snowfell Hall was as derelict as it had ever been, no trace of habitation. I twirled the aspirin bottle between my fingers in my pocket. You were very lucky that you didn't blow your hand off firing a gun that old. It was the heat of the moment. I didn't think. Well, as you can see, apart from you, there's been no one here for a very long time. He was right. The house looked even more forlorn than the last time Kylie and I had trespassed to have a look round. I didn't imagine it all. Hallucinate. I think that's what you call it. I didn't. It happened. Something happened. You found that gun. It was the same gun which had been used to kill two lovers way back in the early 70s. Wallace told me the man's name was Marcus Charlton and that he'd been dead for months before a shepherd found him rotting in the stream below the house. An unidentified woman's body had been found a mile and a half downstream that spring after the thaw. The coroner had left an open verdict. It may not have been suicide. They may not have been lovers. Wallace was watching me carefully as I prowled round the empty rooms. I've seen people with memory loss before. Sometimes it just comes back. Sometimes it doesn't. You can't force it. We'll possibly never know how you came by the gun. Whatever you shot at, we don't have a body. I shot a man. You fired a gun. Let's leave it at that. Whose gun was it? Humour me. I can look it up. It was reported stolen months before they found Charlton's body. I racked my memory for a surname, typed on a label. Collins. R. Collins. I think the gun might have been registered to Richard Collins. The Tory candidate for Tyndale. Is it likely that he was out here last month, Mr. Headley? Have you ever met him? I could hear the sympathy drain from his voice. But the kidnap attempt. We've been through this. No kidnaps reported. No pinkies in the post. Of course, it's quite likely it wouldn't be reported, particularly if it was an amateur attempt that fizzled out. But look around. 
There just weren't three other people living here last week, especially not a prospective MP. His manner was still helpful, placating, but I could tell I'd run out of favours. I hung my head and followed him out of Snowfell Hall. That was that. My anxiety over shooting an unarmed man in the head at point-blank range was a figment of my imagination. No case to answer. They did find evidence of the cat, however, a stinking den out in one of the sheds under a tarpaulin with recently gnawed mutton bones all around. I don't know which was worse, being thought of as a liar or as someone so weak-minded as to dream all this up because I'd spotted the beast of Blanchland and had been so badly frightened I temporarily lost my mind. My pride hurt more than my ribs. I tried to forget it. Kylie was kind, up to a point. I recovered, I bought a bigger car and never travelled the moors without a passenger. We took up wildlife photography. Kylie was quite good at it. Then there was the local by-election. Richard Collins won it. The voters here would return a Tory candidate if the party put forward both ends of a pantomime horse. Kylie and I were walking through the park in town when we came across him being photographed in front of the bandstand. He was in his mid-sixties, the archetypal candidate. Thick grey hair, a suit which cost two grand, a flashy watch and a self-assured smile of victory that made my flesh crawl. Richard Collins with his wife beside him. I only recognised her because she was staring at me. But then, she had aged forty years since I last saw her, and I was only six months older. We stared at each other for a moment. Then, she held up her right hand with a pearl ring on the fourth finger next to the stump where the Member of Parliament for Tyndale had once cut off her little finger with bolt cutters. What's the matter, Netta? I heard him mutter. Smile, can't you? You look like you've seen a ghost. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so dies, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Dies, you tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried to How get do the dead come back, today, Mother? So first of all, um, Rowan Bowman, uh, welcome to the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me on. We've just heard your story, The Beast of Blanchland, and I was just hoping you would tell me a little bit about yourself first. Where do you live then? Uh, there is a local connection to the stories I've read of you. I've re only read two of them, I must admit, but um, there is a, a very strong local connection. Well, The Beast of Blanchland, I, when I wrote it, I lived five miles from Blanchland. Um, and I've, you know, we've had a lot of big cat sightings in the area. So it was a, a very sort of current story when I wrote it. So Blanchland, for those who don't know, it's a very pretty village in, in the wild moors of Northumberland, isn't it? And uh, oh, yeah. was it, it, it's founded by the, some monks, wasn't it? Was it the White Friars? Was it Augustinians? I can't I remember. I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> and I know the Bells of Blanchland is, is, a, is a folk story that um, the abbot was... Uh, his skin was nailed up inside the abbey itself, and it was an abbey in Blanchland. Um, and uh, that was the, the Border Reavers. 
they'd celebrated that the um, the border reavers had passed them by in the mist, and the, the idiots for some reason rang the bells to celebrate, and the border reavers traced back to the, with the sound of the bells and uh, killed everyone. That's a, it's very much exaggerated through time, but um, it's a good story. You just don't know. But I mean, I think we might as well say something about the border reavers, which are uh, familiar to both of us from the West End and the East End of the border, of the English side of the border. Oh, it's quite an interesting thing, really. So it's a very liminal, um, two-sided story uh, with people just galloping backwards and forwards across the border. It's a very porous border, as you know, between England and Scotland. And uh, very often you've got families, warring clans, uh, a very lawless, liminal area between the two countries. Um, still is, as far as I'm concerned. We've, we've moved even closer to the Scottish border here, and we live in a place which 100 years ago was Scotland and is now England. Um, and I'm looking straight across a river to a mile away, which is Scotland, the moors over the, over the other side of the river. Yeah, the Reavers, of course, famously didn't have much allegiance to either Scotland or England because the power of England and Scotland didn't run very well in the border area. So they were more loyal to their own name, weren't they? Their own clan, if you like. It's very much the sort of spirit of the people who live here. There is a certain level of independence amongst people who live in the borders, I think, still. You know, and we are a long way from London. It's very much easier to imagine a local power rather than power down in London. I think people who don't know... Well, this border area, but I mean, I think people imagine England is is a very pretty little place full of big cities and little midsummer murders type villages. But although you're in the North Pennines there, or you were then Blanchland, but the whole area of Northumberland and over the other side of Roxburghshire and Berwickshire and places like that are extremely empty places. They're not very heavily populated. And they're pretty wild. I mean, if you, you wouldn't want to be wandering on the moors with nowhere to go and no car in the winter because you, you may well die. So I, th- I don't think people appreciate how wild an area it is if, if you don't know it yourself. We lived close to Blanchland for 10 years. And in that time, we had three times when the police came around to say there was, you know, a, ge- a general alert for somebody who had gone missing in the area. Uh, you know, just get some context how often people do go missing. Usually, thank God, they're found well and safe, but sometimes they aren't. And it is a very empty, wild place, as you say. And and big cat sightings as well. So I wasn't aware that Blanchland was famous for its big cats. Oh, yes. Well, the, the original idea for the Beast of Blanchland story, um, it, it morphed a lot as I wrote it, but... Uh, there'd been a big cat sighting, allegedly, and it had been reported on local radio in the field below our house. And about a quarter of an hour after it was reported on the radio, I think this would be 2011, the entire road was filled with people in Range Rovers and sort of big puffer jackets and big guns. And about 40 people lined up against a wall in case they saw the big cat to shoot it. <laughs> and of course, no, with all the big cat sightings in the UK, as far as I'm aware, nobody's ever found the body of one or... Uh, they've never actually conclusively proved that they exist, I don't think. Well, I don't know. You see, I've, I think I've had a couple of encounters. I'm, I'm a night wanderer. I tend to like to go out in the countryside in the dark. And I know just outside our house, there was once... You, you get very familiar with, with animals outside and you know deer and you know what badgers sound like. And she, hedgehogs, I mean, are very obvious. Most people will be familiar with, with nocturnal wanderings of hedgehogs. But uh, there's this... 
it was a very still night and I was looking for cats. I've just got my three cats and we just let them loose. We got them from the RSPCA and we kept them inside for six weeks. And this was the first night and I was just making sure they were all right. And I heard something not that far away from me just go sort of, and some funny exhalation, almost like a cat sound, but it, it was wrong for a domestic cat. Instead of a deer, when deer become aware of you and they, they either freeze or they run and they make a lot of noise when they run, this just, it moved through the bushes almost silently. And I don't know what other animal would do that. More convincingly, um, this, this would be about six months before all the guns lined up to try to kill some poor little cat. A few months later, uh, we had a, a large roof terrace and I was looking down from it as I did at night time. It led directly from our bedroom and we had a, a big path that sort of shone through the woodland, a uh, pale limestone path and something crossed it and it was enormous. It, it, the path was 90 centimetres wide. And the creature, whatever it was, was still going. It was its body was about ninety centimeters long, and its tail was long as well. And there's nothing really that we have. It was it's very poor light conditions again, but there's nothing really we have native to this country that could have been either of those things. The most convincing. It wasn't a fox. No, we're not. Foxes no, it was, wasn't like, a fox. And no. Dogs and sheep and deer, as you say. Exactly. And, um, the, the most convincing thing was a farmer's wife. It was in the papers. Um, this would be about 10 miles from Blanchland, a place called Witton Store. And uh, she, she was driving home one night and this large cat jumped into the road in front of her and she reckoned it was pregnant. It was the size of a Labrador with a big, heavy, unmistakable tail. And this is a farmer's wife. She's used to animals and she knew what she saw. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a big cat. And of course, if, if the cat was pregnant, that suggests there's a breeding population. It suggests there's enough there, yes. Yeah. And of course, we're in an area of a, a sort of huge open moors. Um, birds are like, um, you know, pheasants and grouse are bred to excess. So there's the ready animals there to be caught, uh, a lot of rabbits um, and large farms in that area, which really, um, they're so extensively farmed. I don't think people are that familiar with the nooks and corners in their fields like people once were. Um, you know, when you've got an enormous farm of several hundred acres, it's quite difficult to be aware of every spinny and what's going on in it. I, I think there's certainly room. No, I was just going to say, um, because it's so wild and the ground is really difficult in lots of places. I mean, I wander around on moors like that, and occasionally you come across—you know—you come across a, a sheep carcass that's completely picked clean. So it's been lying there for a while. Nobody, the farmer hasn't got it, or maybe he knows it's there. Potentially, has just left it. Well, they're not supposed to, or it may be that he doesn't know where his sheep is. It's remarkable how many of them lose their ear tags when you find them just rotting on the moor. Yeah, yeah, uh, because of course people might not know you, you're not allowed fallen stock. You must dispose of, which comes with a cost. So it's actually cheaper if you if you don't know where they are. Yes. Anyway, so this interest in big cats. So the two, I mean, the other story I read of yours was about the stone circle, mm. or this, the, the archaeological yeah. dig. Uh, and of course, Northumberland's famous for its, its prehistoric remains and its rock art as well. Oh, yes. Yeah. It isn't properly folk horror, except that, because, because to me, folk horror is all about weird, weird locals. And your locals, the locals aren't actually weird. 
but there is a resonance of the past now. Who who used to do Red Shift? Oh yes. Alan Garner. He had that yes. that story in the peak the peaks. Yeah, with with the um, prehistoric remains and and all of this resonance through the past. The Owl Service as well. Alan Garner was great, you know, and actually for children's books, pretty scary as well. I remember Elidor. Yeah, the changes. Yeah, they were. They were really, mm-hmm. um, really mm-hmm. scary books. Although, you know, it was a great favourite of mine when I was growing up. What kind of things do you write? Do you write things with a supernatural or a, um, not, not necessarily an uncanny resonance or always, or do you write a, a broad range of things? Um, I always I always have written um, usually supernatural horror rather than ghost stories. There's, there's quite a sort of subtle difference between horror stories and ghost stories. You know, this, this was tweaked for a competition from the, the ghost story competition. So I sort of emphasise the the supernatural and ghost element rather than any horror element. That, that leads us into talking about the story itself. But although it seemed to me more a time slip event mm. in that, you know, he, he finds this uh, farmhouse and it looks like the 1970s and everybody's dressed like the 1970s and they're not familiar. What was the name? Was it um, Kylie, yes. his girlfriend? And they're not familiar with that name because, of course, in the 1970s, nobody had ever heard of that name. So there was all that kids TV in the 1970s, time slip and the children of the stones and oh, brilliant! Yes, yeah, your stories reminded me very much of those. So, was it a time? Were they ghosts, or did he somehow enter the past? The idea I was trying to uh, come up with was that he was a ghost, but and rather than a ghost coming forward into the present, he was a ghost going back into the past. I get you, and that is very interesting. I hadn't realised that until now. But that is really an interesting idea, isn't it? Because um, there are stories of such things happening, of future ghosts visiting us, or, or people from the future. There was a story I was reading, and there was this couple, and they, they, she keeps having this dream of this house, and she always goes to this house. And then eventually the, the decades go by, and they buy this house, and she recognises it as the house of her dreams. They try to put her off buying it because they say, oh, it's haunted by this old lady. So she had been going back and visiting them from the future into the past. So that's a really interesting idea. I had to, I, you know, we, we buy houses and do them up over the years. And um, we spent a lot of time in sort of quite derelict houses in that way. And we did look at a house once over the, over the hills from Blanchland, actually. And I started dreaming about it very strongly, very vivid dreams. And I had this horrible dream, the last in the sort of series of dreams, where actually I realised I was haunting the house. And that's always, I'd like to bring that into to stories quite often, this sort of funny feeling of awareness that maybe it's me haunting. And did you, ever, did you ever speak to the owners of the house and had they ever seen any ghosts? I did, but I, they were both quite strange. And I think this, it, if I had haunted it, it was more than just me haunting it. Um, they were quite uh, sort of strange, nervous people. And did this put you off buying the house? Did you see it as a kind of a, a, a warning not to do it? We didn't buy it. No, we didn't. We didn't buy it. Oh, yeah. Interesting. So you take, yeah. you know, you give credence to these things as well. I do a little bit. My husband's an archaeologist and, you know, I spend enough time with archaeologists. So you do come across some very strange things. You know, there's the things that's just aren't understood yet, I suppose. So go and tell me, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Tell me a little more about, give me some examples of that. Oh, um, my, the novel I have, our checkmate, we had, um, that was set at Dilston Castle, uh, again, not very far from Blanchland. And we used to host ghost meetings 
to um, ghost hunts to raise money for the for Dilston when it was a, a sort of trying to make it in, into a visitor attraction. And you came up with some odd things in there, some really sort of quite spooky things. I I do water dowsing, and you can use that for contacting the dead allegedly. No idea what happens. You're simply using two L-shaped bits of metal and they twist in your hand and they cross over and you start off saying, is anybody there? Sounding like an idiot. And they start spinning around and sometimes you can spin around extremely quickly and then you say, show me yes. And they swing one way and show me no, they swing another. I don't know what happens. I could be controlling it from, I'm not consciously controlling it, but whatever it is, you get something that appears to be answers. And you can get some quite strange things, conversations going. And at Dilston in particular, a lot of people have, have had strange events happen. We were doing a, well, it wasn't a proper sounds. I, I was again sort of had, was doing the yes and no questionings. And I had a temperature monitor and I felt horrible, just something awful. And the temperature dropped by 10 degrees Celsius for four minutes, which is quite a sort of, you know, on a, on a warm autumn night, that's quite a drop and quite a significant drop. And it just felt horrible. I had to leave. It really, I wasn't scared. I was revolted. It just felt I needed to be out of that particular room. Other people have seen sort of just dark shapes, nothing formulated, just sort of a dark shadow somewhere, all of which can be put down to imagination. But it happens so consistently at that place. I think it is quite a haunted place. So I'm I'm relatively familiar with the dowsing because my partner Sheila goes dowsing. Oh right. Nice. I don't. I can't make him work. But we there's a, a video of us at Long Meg at some point near Penrith. Fantastic. Yes, I know it. Um, you know she's picking stuff stuff up, and then a t- temperature drops. I remember going to the Crown at Bilderston in Suffolk, and it was a June day, and it was very very uh, hot. And that night I stayed in this room and it had a funny feeling, that place, not an altogether nice feeling. And the story was it was built on a plague pit. But of course, you know, whether that's true or not, why you would build an inn on a plague pit, but it may be just because that was the place they buried the bodies because it was convenient and central to the village. I don't know. But anyway, I woke up in the night shivering cold and I didn't think anything of it. I just thought, oh, this room's really cold. And then I drifted off to sleep again. And the next morning I realised it was it was red hot again. It was two really hot days, so it was unlikely to have got that cold in the night. So, yeah, no, these things do happen, absolutely. I, just say, I wouldn't say I believe in ghosts, but something happens. Odd things happen and not everything can be explained. We don't know always what's going on around us. No, absolutely. I would agree completely with you. I, I don't necessarily say that these are the spirits of the dead. They may be. I don't know. I honestly don't know what happens. But as you say, exp- people have odd experiences all the time. And uh, just to say, oh, it can't be so because I have never experienced it. You know. I'd also be very anxious not to dismiss people who do believe in ghosts because I think whether or not they're wrong or right, um, a lot of people get a deep comfort in knowing that there is something after death. And, you know, that, that is, it's fair enough. If you, if you believe, you shouldn't knock somebody else's belief like that. Uh, at the risk of um, going off on a tangent, I work a lot with uh, suicidal people in my day job. And one of my things I say is, well, what's so good about being dead? Oh, and they'll say, well, all this would stop. And I go, well, how do you know? Yes. You know, and then people, 
Well, you don't, we, we simply we simply don't know. It's it's a heck of a gamble. I say, well, you know, my grandmother was a good Methodist. She didn't believe that death was the end. And um, if you're a Buddhist or a, a Hindu or a Muslim or a Catholic or a you know Aboriginal Australian or a Native American or you know most cultures at most times across the world have not believed in this atheistic idea that it just switches off. So this is to me this idea has only been common. For, for 50 to 100 years. You know, go back to my grandparents' generation, most people would not have believed death was the end. Mm. And and I, I, I say to them, look, I actually don't know because I haven't died. You know, I can usually get a laugh out of them, which you may think is a strange thing to do, but usually injecting a little bit of humour can, can help. And I'll say, well, you don't know. Well, have you died? And they go, no. And I go, well, I haven't died, so we don't know. So that is, that, and the bottom line is, no matter... Who tells you what? We just we simply do not know, mm. and we, we don't really understand how our consciousness works. We don't really understand what the world's made of. We don't really understand anything. So to be so definite and say, "Oh no, this is all impossible," um, because my current dogmatic scientific worldview says it is, and the scientific worldview changes over times as well. It's different now than it was in the, in the eighteen nineties. So anyway, there we are, a little hobby horse of mine. Don't, we don't know is the answer, yeah. When your wife's dowsing, has she ever put her hands on yours to make the dowsing rods work in your hands? Um, no, she hasn't. She, I've had, she does other things with energy, and I've had some very strange sensations in my body, like glitter, before we go too far with that one, um, like glitter, you know, running through my body and heat and things like that. So... You know, I, I don't normally get that, but certainly I've had odd experiences like that, yeah. The other thing is my father can't use metal rods to douse. He can only use hazel twigs. The old-fashioned way, yeah. And no idea why, but he can douse effectively for water, but not with metal. And, you know, could be you're using the wrong things. I was just wondering, because if you're working with suicidal people, I'd have thought perhaps showing them they have something else in them like the ability to douse might be foot for thought that you know that there is more than what they're putting up with at the current time which is making them feel suicidal and that is the key message of course that uh, you know no matter how low you feel right now you won't always feel like this mm. and uh, it's just just to allow a bit of light in really however however we can do that i think in brought up catholic suicidal Yes, you just don't fancy what would happen, just in case. <laughs> just in case, as you say, it's a heck of a gamble. Let's not risk it. Let's try something else instead. So um, yeah. anyway, so what do you read then? What kind of things do you read? Oh, um, I enjoy thrillers as well as ghost and horror stories. Um, you know, I've, I've got a, um, at the moment, I'm, just finished reading, bizarrely enough, Beatrix Potter I'd never come across, um, a, a story that she published for um, American writers. And the reason it's appealing, I mean, it's a children's story, it's a children's fairy story, but it's delightful because of her descriptions of, of the Lake District are absolutely fantastic. You're there. I love anything that has a, a really strong mimetic landscape that takes you in and makes you able to to live in, in the story at the I, time. I like writing stories and I like reading stories that are actually very linked to places. Um, and you do that as well. But also um, this, that it's not just places, it's time with you. And I was interested because you were saying that your husband's an archaeologist. So not only are you seeing a place 
geographically laid out, you know, Blanchelands here, Edmund Byers is here, but also you've got the, the epochs going back to, from the Stone Age right to the 1970s to the present day. So, yeah, that, I, I don't know what you make of that, but it struck me that your, your stories are very rooted dimensionally. I feel very rooted in, in the place I live in. Um, it's strange moving, but I've moved further away to be deeper in the country, really. Um, but I do put down very deep roots. But I, I do find the past absolutely fascinating, that the sort of resonance. I can remember once being down on a dig in Yorkshire, and um, they were wondering why there was a, a cup and ball, I don't know, ring and, ring and cup, sorry, uh, carved in a rock sitting just sort of in the middle of nowhere. And I went up there and I sat and it was raining a bit and it was quite a sheltered spot to sit and you just sat there and you could see the somewhere where the rain was coming down, the sun was shining on the rain underneath low clouds. You could actually see there had been a path up there in amongst the rocks. You could see the path as clear as anything. They'd never noticed it before because of the way they were looking at the site. But I was sitting there and I was sitting on a rock and I was just running my finger around the decoration. And you realise that's just been somebody, they've been sat up there on that rock and have made that decoration. And the feeling of being that close to somebody so many millennia ago Absolutely. is fantastic. And that's my comfort. That, that this, this linkedness, this rootedness in the past. I was going to say about Ravenglass, you know, there's a Roman bathhouse there and there's actually in the plaster work, there's somebody's fingerprints and so these these were done by some Roman or a local guy, but who knows? But two thousand years ago, and and then he went home and had his tea. Yeah, I don't mind that you, we don't go on as people afterwards. I'd hate to come back as a, a sort of ghost wandering around with a sheet on. But it's the fact that our consciousness can go out there and just be floating around in the landscape forever. That's that's what I feel happens, and that's that's what I would that's what I take comfort from. That there is a connection with everybody. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I don't usually talk about my own beliefs of that kind, but um, absolutely, very much so. We do not leave. The, how can we leave? This is us. All of this, the landscape, everything is is us. You know, and we are it. You know, um, and the animals as well. But there you go. That's I don't know what that makes me. But there yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, def definitely, no. This this is this is real. All of this is real. It's not going anywhere, and neither are we. We're real. We're not going really going anywhere. Um, we, our, we our bodies may change, but what we are remains. Um, anyway, there we are. This has gone very deep. Um, yeah. So, how long have you been writing for? All my life. Um, it's just been something I've, I've always done uh, for many years until I was in my mid twenties mid-30s really, I, I wrote the horror stories I wanted to write and I wrote alongside it and I was told all the way through school, you know, stop writing this rubbish, you're a good writer, write something that isn't, you know, don't waste your time on horror stories and ghost stories. And this continued for a long time and we started trying to get published and, you know, sort of met people from various organisations who said fairly similar things, you know, you can't get published with ghost stories and horror stories. As it turns out, they're wrong. And I started writing novels, spending a long time writing them, and they were sort of detective novels or whatever. My heart wasn't in it. I've got about, I've got four 
full manuscripts that will never be sent out sitting somewhere. I think I've probably lost them in a move. And, you know, you put a lot of effort into it, but mm. it, just, it wasn't really what I wanted to write, not particularly what I wanted to read. And um, then I started in a writing group in the Lytton Phil in Newcastle, um, which is a, a large private library. It's a wonderful place, beautiful building and very atmospheric. And mm. I just started meeting some fabulous like-minded people and you know, they just said, well, write what you want to write, which is the most sensible and best advice anyone can give anybody who wants to write. You just start. And I started and yeah, I was very scared of failing. So I didn't send anything off. I enjoyed reading my stories to other people, but I didn't send anything off to be published. And it wasn't really, I started a master's degree at Northumbria University. And then I did another one. And there was a lecturer there who just said, well, what are you scared of? And of course, you don't send manuscripts off because you're scared of failure. And you you know, what is the point if you don't try, you don't succeed? So I started sending things off and I'm very circumspect about who I send uh, stories off to. And I do have a fairly good success rate. That's because I don't send many out and I'm very careful. But you, you start to accumulate a number of stories and it's you know I, I just write what i enjoy writing when i enjoy writing it no you're going to say you did a phd yeah i, I did a phd as well um and as i'd already finished checkmate by then i was still writing short stories and sending them out and uh the story i'm writing through my phd i'm afraid i haven't finished actually that was very much set in, in the local landscape uh, you know, around Blanchland, and um, that was, and Barley Hill, where we lived. But that was a horror story rather than a ghost story, and that takes an awful lot more out of you than writing ghost stories. So that leads us into asking, by your um, view, what is the difference between a horror story and a ghost story? Um, They have very, very similar origins, I suppose, but I think the main thing with the ghost stories are you, you can stand back from them. With a horror story, it's designed to get a very guttural reaction from the reader. Uh, you have to empathise with the character, and you don't necessarily have to empathise with the character and ghost story. Both of them require, I, I believe, require a mimetic setting. You have to recognise the reader has to be within that setting. They have to understand it. They have to be able to, in effect, to see through the writer's eyes to know exactly what's happening. Because in a ghost story, you rely on that because you can just introduce to the reader a little sort of, oh, what's happening there? And that little bit of scare there, and that starts to build up the feeling of um, trepidation in the reader. With a horror story, it's, well, the, the classic thing is that it's it's revulsion as well as trepidation. So you're not just scared, you're revolted. And it's that sort of really guttural feeling. It's a lot harder to write than a ghost story. I do find writing straightforward ghost stories far easier. And is that because of the emotional demand on yourself for a horror story? Yes. Yeah. And my methods of writing, I, I really live with the story long before it ever gets onto the page and, you know, rehearse it very thoroughly. And when you're doing that, if you're in a horror situation, it becomes horrific. It, it does get to you after a while. 
Um, whereas ghost stories, there's a certain amount of detachment. I mean, it's the M.R. James thing of sort of it needs to be set decorously in the past, say, 30 years, he suggested, yes. you know, which is a sort of standard thing. Yeah, and yeah. there is that little bit of difference. And the tense in which you write is very interesting as well, because um, I wrote a whole book in present tense. This would be a sort of flag up that, you know, maybe what situation is the narrator telling the story from? Because in ghost stories, the narrator is usually sitting in a comfortable chair relating this to people. That's true. He or she survived. And I think with many ghost stories, it's it's much more, I mean, think of the turn of the screw where the, it's, it's framed around this narrator talking about relating the story of the governess that um, happened many years ago and he's sitting in the club or there at some uh, weekend, I think. But that's pretty common. And a lot of E.F. Benson's stories start like yes. that. In fact, a lot of the classic ghost stories are... H.G. Wells, um, I just did the hole in the wall. Oh, yes. And th they're all like that. Yeah, you know, um, they're, they're sitting in their club telling, you know, a strange thing happened to me. Mm. Um, so, yeah, very much so. It's much more removed. Whereas I think what you're suggesting is by the use of the present tense, the horror story, you're, you're much more in it. Or the, the, the reader, the listener is there with the protagonist going through it rather than looking at it from a cosy distance. Yes. And, and definitely, I mean, in a way, the past tense kind of negates the first person narration as well, um, because, again, it's it's set away at a distance from the reader. First person, present tense puts you right there, doesn't it? You know, uh, I, I hear the door open, you know, blah, blah. Someone comes up the stairs, whereas everything, the third person in the past puts a little bit further distance between the reader and the um, whose eyes are you looking through and, and the uh, the events themselves. So it was a deliberate um, thought process. Uh, you know, I always, before I start a story, I know what viewpoint it's going to be and what tense it's going to be. And that sets a lot of, of what happens in the story off. So it was very deliberate. I'd started off writing The Beast of Branch and in the present tense. And it was a horror story. And it kind of toned down partly because I wanted to enter competitions with it. It toned down into a ghost story. I set it in the past tense, and then automatically a lot of the story falls into place in a very different way. I really like that. I think it must have a thing about the 70s anyway, but I really like the 70s setting. The, the cat kind of makes an appearance at the beginning and at the, at the end, doesn't it? But it, it doesn't really feature in the main, the unfolding. The, the point is that the Beast of Blanchland is the actual... Is the politician not not actually that? Oh, again, oh, God blimey! Yeah, the Beast of Blanchland. Of course, I'm being slow today. The 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 Beast of Blanchland is the evil politician yes. who. Uh, yeah. Okay, I get you. Yes, the the cat is just a big cat who happens to have gone feral. I obviously didn't write it clearly enough. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, you you, you know, you can't think. You can't think for your readers. People bring their own things and they miss things and they get things. And, and, and in the end, interpretations, I think you said this when you were commenting on my reading, you know, the interpretation, once you, you write it, you put it out there and then it kind of doesn't really belong to you completely anymore. It belongs to the person who's... Oh, absolutely, yes. What are you doing now? What are you writing now? At the moment, um, I'm actually writing a... a short uh, children's story um about wild sausages okay okay 
which sounds a bit silly, but I just I got sort of really off on on a kind of um, side thing, a slightly horror story. I, I love horror stories for children. I think they're a really good idea to introduce children early on to the fact that things go wrong in life sometimes. And um, this is, you know, well, meat production in itself is fairly horrendous, but these are our live cute sausages that get hunted down. Oh, no. <laughs> It's just a silly thing, but it's it's. It reminds me of the haggises, of course, because every now and again people talk about wild haggises, don't they, and how they hunt them. Oh yes, yes, yes. That's a distant relation of the, the wild sausage. Kind of, but related, closely related, obviously. Yes, yes. Bit bigger. Bit bigger. Yeah. You're like a capercaillie compared to a grouse. Absolutely. Yeah. So the the, the grampians or the uh, or the wilds of Northumberland. Funnily enough, I was driving about this time last year. I'd gone to Otterburn actually, and I was driving across, and I can't remember where I was going. Mm. And I suddenly looked to the left, and there was nobody about. It was just me on the road in my car, obviously. And um, I see this thing that's, that looks like the devil. And he's got horns and shaggy. He looks like, you know, the devil. And it appeared to be standing on, on two legs, uh, whether it had just reared up. And it was a wild goat. And it took, but it took me. First of all, I'm like, what on earth is that? Because of these wild goats. But it was, you know, like um, something out of Dennis Wheatley. It was like that. And I think, here I, here I am alone on this moor. Uh, luckily, it was a br- brilliantly sunny day. But uh, I thought, goodness me. Uh, yeah, I don't know what the relation that is. Maybe looking after, looking for sausages. I don't know. I love goats' faces. They've got some, you know, sort of otherworldly eyes. Yeah, their eyes are very strange, and it's only the billies that smell. I, I had a, I was very friendly with a goat called George once, who used to eat eat my sandwiches. That was a long time ago. But yeah, no, I'm quite fond of goats. But they will eat. They try and eat your coat and everything. They try and eat everything. Yes. My daughters were named after my favourite goat when I was growing up. Okay. So what, can't explain, what was the name? Oh, Charlotte. Um, she's a, oh, she's so a the goat was... Go- the goat was called Charlotte. And, um, yes, yes. She's a lovely yeah. creature and I was, I was very fond of her. She died when she was 14, so she had quite a good life. But um, So uh, when I was trying to think of a, a name for my daughter, you know, I was very fond of Charlotte, so she got called Charlotte. Absolutely. That's good. And I hope she feels flattered by that as well. You oh, know. I hope so. Yes. Yeah. 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 Because I, I never realised uh, until much later that, you know, when, you, when you're thinking of the names for your children and you, you come up with a great idea, you're, they're actually saddled with it for far longer than you are. You know, you, you come and go, you may be with them for several decades, but eventually they're going to be around when you're not, or they may move across the world and they've still got that name unless they choose to change it. Try being called Rowan. Rowan, yeah, yeah. Although I've come across Rowans. It's common now, but yes. When I was growing up, it was, uh, you know, we lived close to Rowan Atkinson, or his family rather, and um, my Latin teacher thought it was hilarious calling me Rowan Atkinson instead of Rowan Bowman. I've, <laughs> you know, these days teachers didn't tease like that, but it was very irritating. I can imagine. And also a lot of people call me Rowan. Now, is that the Scots pronunciation is Rowan, isn't it? But yeah. of a tree, not of a name. Of a, tr- of a tree, of a name. Yeah, your name is what your name is, isn't it? Um, one of my daughters is called, uh, talking about names, Catherine Persephone, because we lived in Wales for a long time, and uh, I wanted her to have a Welsh name, but then Persephone, I don't know where that came from, but she doesn't tell anybody about that one. Persephone is a very, yeah, a very takeable to Greek, Greek. A hero, isn't it? Isn't a hero? 
I think um, it's in an Aldous Huxley book, Chrome Yellow. He's got a, a heroine called Persephone who gets called Sephi, which are very upper class and I quite liked it. Does she avoid pomegranates? We, we all avoid pomegranates, although I recently was checking out on YouTube how you had, and I managed to find a video on YouTube how you how you really eat pomegranates. Is that the one where you smash them from behind and they're all supposed to fall apart beautifully onto your feet? Pomegranates are murder to eat. I always, I always end up with a pips in my mouth. Yes, you're speaking to dyspraxic here. I, I have to just sort of pick them out with a... Yeah. Yeah, there are certain cuts as well you can do. I mean, there's a technique to this, but yeah. And, and then you think, well, is it really worth it? As to whether she eats pomegranates, I've certainly never given her one. I'll be worried, to be honest. And of course, the, one of the most recent stories I've just done is the pomegranate seed by Edith Wharton. My favourite Edith Wharton is the one with the five little dogs. The, the chap is wandering and he's staying in a, you know, it's, it's, these sorts of things happen. He's staying in a, in a guest house and he goes wandering to the local beautiful ruin. And he's followed by five little dogs. Is it set in France, that one? Yes. And they're ghost dogs. Yeah, I know it. it... And it's fantastic. The only thing is that if he'd stopped it, if she'd stopped it just at that point where he was, just wasn't quite sure, but she went on and gave Oodles of explanation, about two-thirds of the story is the explanation afterwards. And you just think she needed an editor just at this point. Wonderful writer though she is, she needed an editor just to say. The, the Whartons that we've done is the pomegranate seed and uh, we did Mr. Jones and we did Bewitched. And afterward, of course, a famous one. You know, you, she does leave them and you, by and large, maybe it depends which point in her career she was at, but because mm. a lot of people say, oh, I didn't like that, I didn't understand it um, because she, she doesn't explain it. Anyway, I'm a big Edith Wharton fan, actually. Mm. That happens a lot of, of my short stories. People say, I don't understand, so what happened? And the only comeback you have as a writer is, what do you think happened? Because that's what I was trying to do to make the reader think and feel it and imagine it. At the end of The Beast of Blanchland, um, he sees the older politician and his wife without the finger. And, they, and the woman at least seems to recognise him mm. as the ghost. Yes. It's, that's, that's intended, is it? You know, that's that. Yes rounds it out so he, he's he, he wears it in the time he becomes mp for tyndale or somewhere doesn't he tory yes. mp for tyndale yeah yeah there we are so if people want to get hold of your material where's the best place they can find you um i've various places where things have been published i am gathering together my short stories um for a collection and i will try to get that published um my novel's out uh checkmate that's um that's published by Snow Books. Yeah. And of course, the best place for this story and another story, um, which is called Fort Moss, are both published. They've just come out in 21st Century Ghost Stories, Volume 2. And that's edited by Paul Guernsey, who you've, you contacted me through. I did, yeah. He's yeah. the editor of the Ghost Story website, isn't he? Yes. There's a lot of really good stuff on there, so that's definitely a link I'll put. And if people are writing ghost stories, I mean, that's a really good competition to go in for. He's, um, you know, it's a, he's a really nice editor. Yeah, he, and he's very supportive of his writers, isn't he, as well, and, and does his best to promote them and support them and help them. If anybody is setting off writing, um, getting a few short stories published is the best thing before you approach Anybody, even if you're even if you write long fiction, getting some short stories, some short fiction published, or even on short lists, so you have something to to write about, 
when you're putting your, your introductory email in, into a publisher or an agent, you know, really is, it's a very helpful way to begin. And you've got some credits, yeah. And read a lot, of course. And read a lot, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Reading is the foundation, I think. Yes. Very interesting conversation. I've enjoyed it. You can tell I've enjoyed it because I've wandered onto subjects that aren't necessarily closely related to what I wanted to talk on. So you, you grabbed my attention there. So that's good. I imagine most people who are interested in ghost stories are fairly interested in what other people think of as the afterlife. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Okay, so I'll put those links in the show notes. And unless there's anything else to say, I would just like to thank you. Well, I'll thank you anyway. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?